Imagine booking your LL flight to Israel, your hotel, rental car, and tours from the comfort of your own home or office within minutes and saving up to 20% to boot. All that and more is now reality at LL Vacations. Now, for Arut Sheva listeners only, order a flight and hotel in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv through the Arut Sheva site and get a free cell phone with 60 minutes to use absolutely free. Click on the banner on IsraelNationalRadio.com. To all of you lovers of Hashem, is Torah, Israel, and the Noahide nations. Folks, we are especially glad that you're with us here today because we do have a another fabulous edition here with our guest host, Doug Taylor. And uh, it's just been a, a real blessing to have Doug with us and, and filling in for Prescott while Prescott's taking care of business. And we've been having some great discussions. It's been kind of uh, leading in you know, a few different directions, but I think we're, we're still on track to uh, convey some of the main principles here. But, in fact, Doug, why don't you come on in here and say hello to everybody? Good afternoon, everyone. How are you? Okay. Well, I guess uh, they I was... can't respond, but you can. <laughs> well, I was pondering our, you know, our last show. And we're getting into this uh, whole discussion on ideas. And, and I want to kind of revisit this. You know, we're talking about ideas and rational thought versus emotional thought. And in the arena of ideas, when a liberal and a conservative get together and begin to debate, it always starts off with rational thought from both sides. But once it gets going, emotion jumps into it and nothing gets done. Now, my real question lies in, because I'm a conservative, I, you know, that's just me. There's liberals out there that if they were by themselves and were giving rational thought to their ideas, how do they remain a liberal? How, how, I, I don't understand it. Um, it's something that's just plagued me forever. And, you know, when we're talking about the ideas and the emotions versus the, the, the uh, rational thought, uh, we already agree that you can't have a discussion when one side's emotional, the other side is rational. The, it's end of discussion. But help me out here. <laughs> You know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> I understand. So you've raised a really interesting point. Uh, we have two things in life. We have our emotions and we have our intellect. Uh, and a really key question that every one of us has to face is the question of which one of those are we going to use to make our decisions? And there are enormous implications in our lives for how we answer that, uh, because emotions tend to cloud our view of reality, uh, and our intellect can help us see reality more clearly. Uh, but in order to do that, we have to lead in our decision-making with our intellect. And you brought up a very interesting case. So a, a politically liberal person gets together with a political conservative, and they start talking about taxation and social services. Right. Um, and if they were really going to have a rational discussion, 
first of all, each one would be more interested in seeing the truth than in holding their own agenda. So, I mean, I every person, I think it was Sajigan, said a person should always think that he's right and he should be willing to retract if someone shows him that he's wrong or that a different idea is is correct. So okay. uh, if, uh, if one is the conservative, one is the liberal, they would each be approaching this discussion of, okay, I want to understand the issues and completely understand the problem. We'll ask all the questions in order to be able to arrive at what we consider to be you know, the best solution. And we would look at the consequences, for example, if a liberal wanted to have more taxes and more social services and a conservative wanted to have less taxes and less government-provided social services, then they would each, uh, they would look together at, okay, what are the consequences of each one of those? And how does that uh, affect people on a day-to-day basis? And uh, what's an appropriate framework for us to approach deciding how much is appropriate taxation, how much is appropriate social services. And so there wouldn't be this, look, you've got to accept my position. This is the way it's got to be. Um, because once you're into that, then a person isn't open to a new idea. But instead, it would be a comparison of as many facts and consequences uh, and possibilities that we could muster up for the conversation, and then discuss through, okay, what is really important. You could certainly end up with two people operating from a rational point of view that would end up with different conclusions, I think, from some of those kinds of things, because one person might say, and I'm, I realize I'm, I'm making an issue very simplistic here, but they might say, I think that it's more important that uh, we provide a certain level of social services, even if that takes away some income from some people. And the other person might say, I see your point, and at the same time, uh, I think that people should have more of their money left to them and be able to provide those social services on a voluntary basis and not have the government do it for them. And there could be a very respectful, uh, I guess, meeting of the minds but when it gets to, which I think most political discussions seem to, uh, an issue of, no, I'm right and I'm going to show you how you're wrong, then we're into an us-them kind of thing. And if okay. you look at political campaigns and political debates, they, it seems like they rarely stay focused on the issue, but they end <laughs> up in, you know, Kind of a big fight of how can I make this guy look bad and how can I ask him tough questions or embarrassing questions or something mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to simply coming at the issue uh, to say, okay, wh- what are all the factors and let's figure out uh, what it would look like. Uh, it, I suppose an interesting pre-question there would be, what would that discussion look like if both parties came to the table with no preconceived notions? Uh, but simply wanted to work out a solution to that question. That would potentially foster a, a more rational discussion basis to it and, and open up possibilities for you know, maybe some solutions that neither side had ever thought about before. Interesting. So, in essence, what you're talking about here is using your intellect more than emotions. That's exactly right. Um, uh, and I'll, I'll submit to you that in our society, in fact, in life, 
in virtually every area of our lives, the one thing that can protect us and help us is knowledge. And that our emotions generally tend to give us an incorrect perception of reality, uh, whereas clear knowledge can make us more objective. So it doesn't mean that we shouldn't feel or be compassionate. I mean, we have emotions, or emotions are part of us. But what we want to do is get those lined up behind our intellect, not the other way around. Let me give you an example. Uh, in a lot of countries in the world, there's a lottery. Uh, in the United States, a number of states have right. lotteries. You buy a ticket for a small amount of money in hopes that you get your ticket selected and you win this fabulous jackpot. Right. So we have one in Washington State, uh, where I'm from. And I once listened to a radio advertisement that uh, was promoting that lottery. And if I recall, tickets were a dollar. Uh, the prize or the jackpot, if your ticket was selected, was $1 million. And if I recall correctly, the end of the ad included a little caveat where the announcer said, the odds of winning are 1 in 38 million. Now, think about that for just a second. Tickets are a dollar. The payoff is a million dollars. But the odds of winning are 1 in 38 million. That means that mathematically, on average you would have to buy 38 million lottery tickets at a dollar each, so an expenditure of 38 million, in order to achieve an expected mathematical return of a million dollars. In other words, you'd have to invest 38 million to get a million back. Not a million of interest, you'd have to let go of 38 million, and on average you'd get one million dollars back. Yeah, it doesn't sound like much of a of an investment retirement plan. No, it would be sort of like <laughs> I'll I'll tell you what I'll make you a deal. We'll take the zeros out of it to bring it bring it down to <laughs> to a, a, a more uh, realistic basis. You give me thirty eight dollars, I'll give you a dollar back. How do you like it so far? Well, I don't. Uh, I'm, now I'm asking questions. <laughs> yeah. Why would anyone in their right mind make an investment like a lottery ticket? And right. the reason is it's the fantasy. It's the fantasy that I'll be rich. And that's what the purveyors of, of those things are selling. Um, I mean, if you looked at it strictly without all the the fantasy trappings of it, no one would ever make such a terrible investment. But that's not what's being sold. It's not being sold as an investment. What's being sold to you is the fantasy of wealth. And so people do this every day. And they say, well, yeah, it's not a good investment, but it's just a dollar. And, you know, and I might win. Well, yeah, but that's just like throwing the dollar away. And it's that fantasy that's driving us. So, okay, so, so how, do we, how do we bring this back into a focus of Torah then? How, how do we utilize this, which we have been talking about, and and focus that energy on Hashem, on His Torah? I mean, obviously, to a degree, and sometimes to a large degree, uh, learning Torah is an emotional uh, exercise. I mean, I, because to me, the, having a spiritual life with Hashem is not intellectual. It is emotional in, in a spiritual sense. But in order to get there, you have to have the intellectual side of it which is the study. So how do we bring all this back into that framework? 
So I'd suggest that you approach the study and the application of study and the operation of the lessons in our everyday life uh, from the same basis that we would use to do the study and the same basis that we understand the patriarchs used to make decisions. In life, we have to analyze situations that come up to us and make decisions based on our reasonable estimate of probabilities. I mean, there, there are some black and white situations in life where it's very clear, but other things, you know, you have to weigh probability. Should I take the job in Atlanta and leave Seattle, or should I stay here and, you know, for all the various reasons? Uh, it, it's my understanding that when, uh, uh, according to one of the commentators, uh, when Abraham had to make a, a choice uh, between staying where he was, where there was a famine, or going down into Egypt, he made an analysis of the situation. He wasn't given a, a FedEx envelope by God. He had to analyze the situation and figure out, okay, what's the best probability with all the information that I have? So I study the Torah to try to learn and understand the ideas that are there and what kinds of principles I can extrapolate from those stories uh, and learn from those things. And then I try to take those same lessons and apply those in my everyday life. And uh, in, in lots of big decisions in life, there are almost always benefits and losses. And, and very few situations are perfect. So you have to weigh those. But what I'm suggesting we can't do or sh- uh, we will experience, I guess, uncomfortable outcomes if we do, is to do something because it just feels right. Because where does the feeling come from? Uh, and it's hard to know where they come from on, on what they what they represent. Um, so okay. we, we need to be careful that I'm not reading into an idea, say, what my emotions want to see, but to really look at it. Okay. Well, then here's a, a, another question uh, that you can feel, if you would. Mm-hmm. We know that in Torah, uh, there, there, there's Torah law, and a number of these laws are very easy to understand. They're, they're very obvious. Thou shall not commit murder. Well, it's obvious. You have no right to take the life of another creation, another human being, another animal, whatever. So it's very obvious why... Uh, Hashem would pass that down to us. Now, then, then we get into the other laws that are decrees. Things that just kind of, the, Hashem told us about them, told us, that, you know, things that need to be done, but they're not easily understood. For example, the ashes of, of the red heifer. The ashes were, a, they were kept outside of the camp. And whoever carried the ashes outside the camp became unclean and therefore had to go and become cleansed. And yet the ashes, that the very ashes that, he, that made him unclean are the same ashes that are used to cleanse somebody of their sins, you know, with teshuva and everything. So it's something that doesn't make logical sense, and yet they did it because Hashem said to do it. Right? I understand. Or am, I, am I so far off in left field that I, I've, I've lost you? Nope, nope. I think you're right on, uh, right on target. So there's okay. halacha, which is, which is Torah law, and we have to follow that because uh, Hashem gave that. Now, 
That doesn't mean that I can't look into that law and say, okay, what is the benefit to us of following that law? Uh, I mean, Hashem didn't just say, yeah, let me make up a bunch of crazy stuff and I'll give it to these people and make them do it. And, you know, uh, that's not a, that's not a rational approach. Um, the, uh, the, the laws that were given to us have certain benefits and part of the learning is about looking into those laws to figure out, well, what is the benefit to me of following that? Now, I still have to follow it, but that doesn't mean I can't dig into it and say, all right, yeah, I'm not supposed to steal. Now, given that I'm not supposed to steal, what are the ways that that benefits me? And we talked about uh, one of those uh, earlier about how you know stealing can uh, wreck your own ability to think. Right. Uh, things that murder could do, things that um, you know inappropriate sexual relations could do, and so forth. So I'm, it's really part and parcel of knowing and understanding those laws to be able to say not only here's what I have to do, but here's at least part of the why that I've been able to work out. And and the the Jewish people get involved in this study of the laws, and if you ask. Uh, a rabbi, well, well, what's the benefit of, you know, uh, the lulav and the esrog and so forth? Right. They'll, right. they'll be able to tell you what those things are about and what they relate to. And as they do the commandment, one of the, the ways to benefit from that is to be thinking about the ideas behind it, not just a rote following of, okay, somebody told me to do this, so I'll do it. But no, as I'm doing it, you know, I'm hopefully thinking about the ideas behind that, which is then keeping me involved uh, in in my intellectual mind uh, and helping me to see the the truth of what's going on. Now, you raised the question about the ashes of the red heifer, and it is my understanding that King Solomon, who was one of the wisest men who ever lived, looked into the commandments and was able to figure out a rationale for every one of the commandments except the ashes of the red heifer. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> and, and it's my understanding that even he was not able to figure out the reason for that one. Uh, so we can we can certainly go as far as we can go. Uh, and in the area of, of halacha, uh, Torah law, I still have to do what, what the law is. But when we get outside the area of law, and I'm into the area of philosophy, right. well, then I, you know, I have a lot of latitude to uh, to to move, and I need to go down the road that is the one that is clear to my own mind, that makes sense to me, uh, and follow that because all I really have, as we've discussed in in our previous uh, shows, is. All I really have is is my mind and and my knowledge to go on. And even if somebody else says says something philosophically now, then they may have a point. But if I don't get it, I can't operate on the basis of it. It's my understanding that Jonah, when he uh, was told by God to uh, go prophesy to the people of Nineveh, that uh, it says that he... Uh, was trying to run away from God. 
Now, that in itself is a really strange thing. Like, how in the world could you run away from God? Right. <laughs> but I under, my understanding from uh, uh, Rabbi Chait, and so this is an idea I received from him, but I will take full responsibility if I've not uh, transmitted it appropriately, was that he said a prophet has to operate on the basis of his knowledge. Uh, it's we we can sometimes think you know oh being a prophet so simple you get this message from God and you got this direct conduit it's like the hotline and it's it's not doesn't work that way that that the prophet has to understand it and that Jonah could not understand how God could allow the people of Nineveh who were a wicked people to be able to get the opportunity to repent. And so he was trying to get away from that, I guess, command to go do that to them because he simply could not understand it. Uh, and through the book, uh, his, his understanding is changed. But a person has to operate on the basis of their knowledge level. Um, so we've got halacha on the one side and philosophy on the other, or not two sides, but two parts of life. The halacha we absolutely have to follow, but we can study it to understand the reasons and, and benefits to it. And philosophy, uh, then we have to operate fully on the basis of what we understand to be true. Well, that's a pretty good response. So I, I guess my question is, how you liking my question so far? Are, <laughs> I like are, your question. Are, are we making a point? I think we are. <laughs> okay. And, well, you know, some of the, you know, just listening to you, it's driving some of these questions right to the, you know, the, the really the heart of the matter. And I was completely unaware that King Solomon did what you say he did, and yet that was the only one that he couldn't. <laughs> to do some rational explanation for, which then kind of leads me to the conclusion that some of what we do as far as the halakha is emotional. And it's not all purely an intellectual exercise, though obviously the majority of it is. And then the, your spirit kind of takes over, and, and I've always said it, the more Torah that you study, the more you change in your life. Yeah. Well, it's 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 an interesting point, uh, and even with regard to the ashes of the red heifer, which uh, we as Noahides don't have to worry about, but the uh, the Jews would if the uh, the temple were standing. I would say that their adherence to that is an intellectual decision made on, or at least theoretically ought to be, uh, based on their intellectual understanding of why the Torah is true and the fact oh. that they're obligated to follow it. But the emotions okay. can play an important role because they're kind of the, in some respects, the horsepower behind what we do. They bring passion and energy to the things that we do. And so if we can get those lined up behind the intellectual decisions that we've made with regard to what the appropriate direction is, then we've got a real combination powerhouse that can make a lot of things happen. Great. Well, listen, Doug, we need to bring this first half to a close and get on out of here so we can uh, allow Israel National Radio to make a buck or two, keep us on the air. So we're going to go ahead and sneak on out of here, folks. Uh, stick with us. We hope to see you on the other side.
What lessons have you learned from life? Here's what Helen Keller has learned. The best and most beautiful things in the world cannot be seen or even touched. They must be felt with the heart. Would you like to learn more life lessons? Tune in to my brand new show, Life Lessons with Judy Simon, and hear the life lessons that the guests on my show have learned on their journey through life. Tune in to the new show, Life Lessons with Judy Simon, on Israel National Radio. You don't have to be in Jerusalem to buy the best of Judaica. Now sterling silver, artistic glassware, jewelry, talitote, mezuzot, and much more are available online at judaica4u.com. Or you can just walk into our downtown Jerusalem location in the Bell Tower, judaica4u.com. On the web, in Jerusalem, and now in Moda'in, in the Kaiser neighborhood, Judaica, the number four, the letter U.com. Hopefully, the Noahide Nation show. I know I have been. I, I hope my my questions, Doug, are more than adequate. And and I know we got a you know a number of other subjects that you want to get into that I think are quite excellent subjects. So before we get there, though, I've got a question for you, and it has to do with what we ended the show or ended the first half with, and that's emotion versus intellect. And if I were to ask the question. Is faith an act of intellect or an act of emotion, or, or is it both? Well, that's a great question, Ray, and I'd like to actually turn to the writings of one of my mentors, Rabbi Israel Chait, who has uh, been very active over the years in uh, helping Noahides. Put, he put together years ago about a 100 one-hour lectures specifically to Noahides, and is a brilliant Torah scholar. And I believe it was some of his students collected a number of his articles and put them into uh, written form in a book called Philosophy of Torah, uh, which I believe is available through uh, Masora.org. But there is a particular article, and he goes into a lot. We could practically do a whole show on, on this one uh, one topic. But he has one particular paragraph which I think really gets to the, the answer to your question. Um, he asks, what then is, is bitachon, the Hebrew word, or true faith? And he writes, it is not a mental mechanism or device to be used when in need. It is a state of mind, an appreciation of ultimate reality. In this state, one is in contact both in mind and emotion with the Creator. It is a state in which one senses total security in the knowledge that the Creator knows his plight, that all operates under his providence and jurisdiction. This idea offers man his true sense of well-being. It pervades him with an inner calm in the face of the most formidable obstacles. In such a mental framework, he is not in search or in need of human compassion. And then he continues on in the next paragraph, What gives man this view of reality? His knowledge of God which stems from knowledge of God's works, his word, the Torah. So in answer to your question, I think 
true faith is both an intellectual and emotional experience. It's that state of mind where you sense total security in the idea that God knows the situation I'm in and that everything is operating in accordance with his divine providence. And I know that both with my intellect and my emotions. So we're kind of talking about uh, emunah, uh, knowing with uh, uh, certainty that Hashem is is there, that everything that happens in our life is is a result of Hashem, and it's all to our benefit. Yes. yes. Excellent. The whole, the whole world okay. operates in accordance with Hashem. And interestingly, one of the big, the, the most difficult things I think that we face in life is learning to accept reality and that virtually all of our pain in life comes about because we resist what is happening in the world or we resist reality. You know, I want that plane to go on time even though it was canceled, you know, and I'm upset about it. Uh, And if I just accepted, okay, planes do that, it happens, fine, I'll read a book for two hours... I wouldn't create all that pain for myself, uh, and and so on with with many different events. So it's almost like us fighting against the reality and the systems uh, that that God created that create difficulty for us. Well, I would have to say when I was younger, I did a lot of resisting. <laughs> I guess that's where 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 they came up with you. You are your own worst enemy. <laughs> I I completely understand. It's uh, it's one of the big the big challenges that we face. Well, thanks for that answer. I I, I kind of suspected that that's what it was, but hearing you know about uh, Rabbi Chait, that's uh, an excellent explanation that he's provided there. So I appreciate you bringing that out. So what have you got for us next? Well, I thought we we would get into you know you were asking about how does this uh, how does this relate to the Torah learning that that we do, and I wanted to bring in another point that I learned from the rabbis over uh, over many years. Uh, that I, I can perhaps best illustrate by uh, an incident that happened some years ago. I found myself, as we do from time to time, in my car, and I'm on my way to a meeting. I was eating a hamburger, and I was simultaneously listening to an educational cassette tape on my car's audio system. And the tape finished, and I pulled it out of the player, mentally checked off that I'd completed it, and then slipped in another one and began to listen to it. And you remember now, I'm, I'm still driving and I'm eating at the same time. <laughs> oh, you're one of those, huh? <laughs> and sometime later, it dawned on me that I was sliding across the material in those cassette tapes like a greased pig on ice. <laughs> Truthfully, I probably couldn't remember hardly anything of what I'd heard. I mean, I was under the illusion that I was learning, but in fact, I was barely touching the surface of the ideas. And today, you know, I can't remember virtually a single thing about what was on that tape. Now, the the reason that's important is because of a principle that Rabbi Moskowitz taught me years ago, that a quantity of ideas that are not clear to us affects us less 
than one idea that is clear. And so it is better to understand one idea clearly than many ideas superficially. Uh, there's a tendency we have in the society to want to cover ground, you know, uh, read this, memorize that, uh, got to go through all this material, you know, and I got to get through this particular section of the Torah. It's like, well, wait a second, why don't we slow down and read just this one paragraph and see what we can see in that before we jump on uh, to the next one? You know, in certain areas like professional certifications and stuff where the systems are set up so I have, they want to ensure that a certain level of material is mastered, um, that's one thing. But in our Torah learning, there's no obligation to finish. So we should only learn as fast as we can absorb the material. And a quantity of ideas that aren't clear is going to affect me less than a single idea that is. I went to a conference on leadership a number of years ago, and, you know, it was a week, five days long, and we got to know the people and so forth. And uh, one of the guys was introduced as someone who reads a lot. And by reading a lot, I mean this guy read like probably three to five books a week. Wow. A huge amount. I mean, I think he spent all of his spare time reading, and he, he got through hundreds of books a year. And... I mentioned this to one of my rabbinic mentors because I thought, wow, that's a pretty cool thing. And I noticed that he was singularly unimpressed. And he, <laughs> said, he said, that doesn't do anything. He said, the question he, he said I would ask is, how many of those ideas in those books really affected that guy? Because if they didn't, then what was the whole purpose of it? If all you do is pick up information... I think he used the example, it's like a donkey carrying books. You know, if it doesn't affect the person, then there's not much point. Because after all of our learning, what remains, what sticks, is our education. So right. we've, we've got to get an idea clearly as we move on, rather than just, okay, yeah, that's fine. You know, like I did in my first class with Rabbi Moskowitz when I sort of thought, okay, yeah, that's an easy verse, and we ended up drilling into it for an hour. <laughs> an, an interesting way you can do this is you can use, you know, now stuff on the net or a video recorder or an audio recorder and select a piece of material. It could be a, a sheer, a lecture, one of these shows, uh, a news broadcast, biography, anything you want, and listen to a short section of it, maybe five, ten minutes. Uh, or if it's a book, read a short section. And then sit down, as we talked about in an earlier show, think about all the questions that you have around the material that was presented. And then go back and listen to it or read it or watch the same segment again and see if you come up with more questions. And then do that a third time and ask yourself, do I really understand that piece of information clearly and completely, or all the ideas clear to my own mind. Uh, many years ago, uh, I understand Rabbi Chait, uh, as a, I think a college student, studied the Dialogues of Plato. And you, know, you can sit down and read the Dialogues of Plato and say, yeah, that's interesting, but he did it a little different way. He covered one page in a day, and he would read a single page 
And then he would spend the rest of his time that day that was centered around Plato, just focused on that one page. Why did Socrates ask this question? Why did he go down this path and not another path? And he analyzed deeply just what was going on in that section. And it's my understanding that this process, that experience of, of, of focusing on just a small piece of the entire work each day, profoundly affected his thinking. So clarity in a single idea is more important than skating across 20 ideas. And that makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, and, and so what you're telling us is that don't bother with the speed reading courses because they ain't any good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I suppose that can that can help you in certain situations or if you're reading a novel and you just wanted to get on with the, you know, to find out if the butler did it or whatever. But, yeah, when we when we focus on Torah, we want to slow down a little bit because we're so used to reading across those verses quickly and missing things that that can be uh, important. There's a particular uh, story you may remember when Joseph finally brings his father, uh, Jacob, to meet Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, how old are you? And Jacob says, you know, 120, I forget the exact number, years have been my journey through life. And then he goes into this kind of a short dialogue about my days have been few and they've been harder and not as good as uh, or not as as long as my ancestors and it's been difficult. And then conversation wraps up and he leaves. So I've read that story many, many times. And finally, one, uh, I think it was Rabbi Moskowitz raised the question of, let's stop and look at that dialogue. Here's Pharaoh. He's meeting Jacob for the first time. And the first question out of his mouth is, how old are you? What's up with that? That's a pretty <laughs> odd question to ask somebody right out of the box. And he gave this interpretation, which I thought was just brilliant. He said Jacob was very, very smart and very astute. And he figured out from that opening question that Pharaoh was a guy with a big ego that was very concerned about somebody upstaging him. And so he was asking right off the bat, how old are you? And from that, uh, Jacob was able to surmise, whoa, this guy's really concerned about his position. He doesn't want somebody older and wiser or something coming in, you know, that he's got to be afraid of. And so Jacob answers the question about how old he is, but he couches it all in this, you know, I've had a hard life and I haven't lived as long as my ancestors and all this stuff with the sort of uh, hidden meaning of, you know, I'm just a, a little guy and you don't have to worry about me. But I had, you know, zipped across that story umpteen times and just figured out, okay, fine, they had a little dialogue. But when you dig into asking, well, why did he ask that question? That question doesn't make any sense. Then it starts to open up possibilities of, well, what's really there and what can I learn from that? Uh, I mean, from that we can learn that, you know, when you get into a dialogue in a a personal situation or professional situation or a political situation with someone and you're able to discern very quickly that they're a person with that kind of personality, then you can learn I better tiptoe very carefully here 
because I don't want to start up a problem with somebody who's in a powerful situation. It just kind of just occurred to me that it would seem that one of the best ways to study Torah would be with a group of people. So that in in asking these questions, you get a, a variety of thought, but also in answering the question, you get a variety of thought. And, of course, you know, just, this, just studying Torah is good whether you do it in a group or alone. But I can see where your mind could really be expanded and your thoughts really expanded by having a group of people. In fact, it's even occurred to me, too, that these rabbis, they've, they must have a corner on the market when it comes to photographic memory. Because these Torah scholars, I mean the real hitters, they, they have photographic memories. So they can read a page and sit and ponder it all day by remembering it exactly as it was. Is, I don't know, was Rabbi Chait, did he have a photographic memory as well? I'm not sure if he did, but he certainly had an incredible, broad intellectual understanding and, and knowledge of Torah and Tanakh and the Talmud and a wide variety of science and physics and, and uh, psychology wow. and all kinds of different things. Uh, well, I know for me, I've got to go back and study things over and over and over again just to, just to continue to, to understand it. it even, yeah. And just got to keep, it, keep going back. It's, it's true. And the idea you brought up about studying with other people, uh, it, it's very important because if we go off all on our own, it's very easy to kind of start to get an idea and go down a particular road and without somebody there to challenge that idea and say, well, wait a minute, you're missing this, you're missing that. Uh, we, we all generally do better when someone will challenge our ideas because it causes us to have to think deeper and recognize when we're making mistakes. And you're probably aware that, you know, in, in a public school, if you go into what's called a study hall, uh, right. at least when I was growing up, those were very quiet places where you went off by yourself in the little study carol and sat there and did your work and, you know, if you started to whisper to somebody or talk to somebody else, uh, if there was a supervisor there, they would tell you, no, you can't do that here. You go into a yeshiva study hall, and it's a very noisy place because they pair the students up, and they're there having an intellectual sort of grapple with an idea, and they're challenging each other with questions. Yeah, but what about this, and what about that? But I think Rashi meant this. Well, if he meant that, then this would... And and they're doing that sort of like kneading bread dough, you know, to where they can really get down to, okay, we've covered all the, the questions and I've seen them from multiple angles. So I absolutely agree with you. It's very important to be involved in study with other people uh, and, and particularly with a learned rabbi, either directly or through classes on the net or through recordings to get their ideas and then sit and talk about them with friends. And, you know, maybe you raise more questions and maybe you go back to the rabbi and say, you know, I listened to your shear, but I had these, you know, three follow up questions, which I wasn't clear on. Uh, and, and that helps you to really get down to the real truth and, and make the ideas yours. And, and, always, and always review your notes. <laughs> well, it's funny you should mention that because that was a key idea that I wanted to raise. There is one technique that you can summarize in a single word that can help you increase your learning and your retention and that you can do it virtually anywhere, and that is review. We absolutely have to review. Uh, when we encounter ideas and questions, 
we need to start at the beginning and go over the ideas until they're completely clear to our mind, and that's review. And that begins to affect my life and begins to make the ideas real to me. That's not the same as just memorizing an idea rotely. It means I go back and really think it through and go through the steps again in order to fully understand what's there. Uh, and then it starts to, uh, starts to become a part of me. There was an interesting incident that occurred a number of years ago when two highway patrolmen made a routine traffic stop on an interstate highway, and what they didn't know was that the two men inside the car had just robbed a bank. And the robbers didn't realize it was just a routine traffic stop, so they began shooting at the patrolman. And the patrolman returned fire, and so there's a firefight now going on. Mm -hmm. And someone from a distance actually, as I understand it, filmed what transpired next with a video camera. So both officers are behind their patrol car, and one of them gets hit, and so he's down, and the other officer is continuing the fight, but his gun jams. And on the video, we see him crouched behind the patrol car, attempting to unjam his gun with his hand stuck up in the air. Can you guess why a patrolman would hold his hand up in the air in the middle of a live firefight? Oh, boy, I'm clueless. You got me on that one. <laughs> it's It's a very interesting reason when the... A uh, patrolman trained at the gun range, whenever your gun jammed, the rule at the range was you raise your hand and the range master will come help you. And that rule had been so drilled into that guy's head that when he got in a real firefight, he did exactly what he had been trained to do, which was hold up his hand for help. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And the same thing can happen to us in a positive way when we review the ideas that we've gone over. They start to become a part of us so that acting on the basis of those becomes pretty automatic. Well, and it becomes who we are. I guess that's why we, you know, now makes a whole lot of sense why we read the Parsha year after year after year after year, all the Parsha readings every week, uh, just just for that purpose, because redundancy is a great way to learn. Sometimes it gets boring, but when you look at it like the way you've been describing, you could uh, find yourself in, in some pretty in-depth discussions. Yeah, and you know, it's a little bit like an analogy. It, it, suppose you have a white sheet and you want to dye it red. So you get a big tub, and you fill it up with water, and you add some dye, and then you dunk in the sheet. Now, if you pull the sheet out right away, it's likely that you won't see much difference. But if you dunk the sheet in and pull it out, and dunk the sheet in and pull it out, and dunk the sheet in and pull it out, and keep repeating that process many times, the sheet will slowly turn pink. And if you do it long enough, it'll turn red. Each time you dunk the sheet is like review. <laughs> you, you likely can't tell any difference in color at the beginning of one dunking versus the end, but slowly, 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 that review is having a sort of drip, drip, drip effect on you. Great. Well, hey, Doug, we're going to have to end it here. Listen, thanks again. We're going to have to have you back. I'd love to, Ray. That'd be great. Excellent. I'm going to hold you to that, Doug. In the meantime, folks, thanks so much for being with us. We will see you next week. And until then, Shavuot Tov. Have a nice week. 
Hello, I am Walter Bingham. Ever since Walter's World started in Israel some six and a half years ago, I closed the program with an appeal to visit your elderly neighbor. Listeners in Europe will be too well aware of the appalling weather conditions at present, snow, ice and constant temperatures in double digits below zero Celsius. There is also severe weather in other parts of the world. It is therefore extremely important that the elderly are being cared for. They may not be able to venture out to buy their medicine or food. Their heating oil may have run out, and they have been known to be afraid to turn on electric heaters in case the bill gets too high, and subsequently this will lead to hypothermia and in some cases cause death. I therefore appeal to you to please attend to your elderly neighbor's needs. Remember, you too will be getting old someday. Go now and do it. Thank you.